0: We're going to start there, and we'll end up in a a few different places tonight. We good, Brother Josh? We connected, I hope. That's not on mine. (laughs) All right. Try this again. All right, now I have got to do this again. All right, hang on. There we go. All right, very good. All right, we got we took the death trap out and put a new one in here. How's that? Well, not a new death trap, a new uh, a new uh, a new holder. It fell off and almost killed a kid last week, so we changed. <laughs> But um, I hope the glare is not too much in that thing. I tried to put a little piece of paper on the back of it to keep the glare off and everything else, but um, uh, we'll see, we'll see. But let's review real quick, all right, as we get started here. You're doing a great job with these. I almost feel like we don't even need to review, but what do we have? What's this here? Mediterranean Mediterranean Sea. Good job. What's this? Sea of Galilee. Galilee. This? And this? Red Red Sea. All right, what country is this? Egypt. Ah, oh, threw you curveball. All right. Uh, what's it? What? What country is this? Syria. Syria and Lebanon. Yeah. All right. And what's the river? Jordan River. What is the? What's this valley? The Arva Valley. What's this whole area called? The Negev. And this. The wilderness of Zin. And this. The wilderness of Paran. Very good. What's the area that is around the Dead Sea here? The Judean wilderness. Very good. All right. And we've been talking about the Jezreel Valley, and we, we've mentioned a couple of different things. We talked about Gilboa. We talked about Shean. All of those are right up here in this area. And what we're going to be talking about tonight is Megiddo, uh, which is right. So here's the, here's the Jezreel Valley, all right, and we've talked about several different places. Here's Mount Carmel. Okay, Can everybody see that? I know it's pretty close. It, it's hard to see. You, you're not going to actually be able to see the places. But there's this little thumb that comes out on, uh, on the coast there. That's actually Haifa, and that's probably a place that you've heard of fairly often. But right next to that is Mount Carmel. So we talked about Elijah, you know, getting and We're going to talk about that story, actually, uh, a little bit later with Elijah on Mount Carmel uh, and the prophets of Baal and all of that stuff. But when he, when he was up there and he looked out into the sea and he saw the, a cloud the size of a man's hand, he would have been looking right there into the Mediterranean Sea because of how close that is to Mount, Mount Carmel and to the Mediterranean Sea and everything else. And then how many miles did he run to get to Jezreel? Do you remember? Fifteen miles he ran, and he outran who? Ahab. Who? Ahab. He, he outran Ahab's chariot. Very good. So we're talking about the same area, all right? I'm going to show you some things. We're talking about Megiddo tonight, and um, Megiddo has got some very, uh, it's, Megiddo is very significant uh, in history and in the future. And so it's a very, very, very important place in Israel, and, and honestly, more than just in Israel, it's a very, very important place in the world. And so, so Mount Carmel is here. You come down the Jezreel Valley and all of that stuff, and Megiddo is right there, all right? So I'm going to give you a few things uh, about that, and then we're going to look at some of the places here in the Bible. So Megiddo is a hill. That's, that's Tel Megiddo, all right? And remember, what's a tell? Basically a man-made hill, right? Yeah, with lots of different civilizations built on top of it, and wait till you see how many are built on Megiddo. Megiddo has been a very strategic place throughout all of history, and uh, you can just look at it and almost you can see the layers there, Uh, but Megiddo, Tel Megiddo is a hill overlooking the valley of Megiddo, and as we mentioned here, Tel Megiddo is located about 15 miles east of the Mediterranean Sea, about 25 miles southwest of the Sea of Galilee. So, that up there at the top, which my my, map, my pointer doesn't work on the TV, but right above that is the Sea of Galilee. You can see the Jordan River winding its way down. Megiddo is right there where that little star is, okay? Mount Carmel is up there in the top. You see the Jezreel Valley. You see the Hill of Moray. You see the Herod Valley, Beth Shea, and Tel Jezreel. All of those are places that we've already talked about um, and have spent, you know, a Bit of time talking about those things. And so maybe a little bit closer up of that map here is right there. There's Megiddo. All right. Mount Carmel is up on that thumb. A little bit past that is Haifa. Okay. You come down the Kishon River, which we're going to talk about and and is is pretty significant as well. Uh, The Kishon River there goes down through the Jezreel Valley. The Jezreel Valley runs into the Herod Valley um, and down into the Jordan Valley. All right. All of that kind of runs together and, and all of it is called. Uh, the Jezreel Valley there. Now, the reason why it's so important, Megiddo lay at the juncture of several key routes, and uh, the main route is called the Via Maris, which I know I showed you a picture of already. I don't know if you remember when we were in Ashkelon, and I showed you a picture of the Via Maris right there on the Mediterranean Sea, Um, but it linked Africa to Asia and Europe. And I have this map. You're welcome to come look at this later. Um, but you see this, so this is the Mediterranean Sea, all right? You have Turkey, you have Syria, you have Lebanon, you have Israel, Jordan, Saudi Arabia, Egypt, and, and all of this area in here. So this area really linked everything that was in Asia, everything that was in the, uh, in the West, and everything that was in the South. It, it linked all of it together. So the Via Maris literally ran, actually the Via Maris ran all the way around the Mediterranean Sea. But it was a very, very strategic um, uh, route because all of the trade took place there. So essentially, whoever controlled Megiddo controlled the trade, and that's why I mean, some very, very serious. And you can look at this later as as you come up here. But okay, here's Syria, uh, Lebanon is here. The top of Israel is right about in this area right here, and Megiddo is is right there. So right in that little valley area. I mean, it was, it was such a strategic, strategic place, especially when you consider uh, the ports that they had there and the, on the Mediterranean Sea and everything else. Just a very, very, very important place, very strategic place. And uh, for that reason, any country that rose to world power had to control Megiddo because of the strategic location there. So um, you can see again. There's the Valley of Jezreel. You can see Megiddo, Beth Sheen, Jerusalem. But but that Via Maris, it just runs right down the edge of the coast. And of course, you had the King's Highway as well. That was another one that was well traveled, <clears throat> but not near as much as the Via Maris. And not as you know, nothing was as strategic as Megiddo being there on the Via Maris. And so, uh, very, very, very important place. Now, here's this is what it looked like from the air. So the city of Megiddo played a prominent role in the history of the ancient Near East. And you know, if you, if you know anything about world history, you know how, much, uh, how many battles were fought, how much trade was being done, and everything else, and, and uh, of course, there's Megiddo in the circle there, <clears throat> but this is a pass, the Megiddo Pass, and, the, and basically, to continue on down the coast, you had to get through that pass, and whoever controlled Megiddo controlled that pass, and so it was such a strategic location, and I told you one of the main things, and we looked at this with Tel Jezreel, we looked at it with a lot of the other tells that we've talked about that uh, every one of them had at least two things and that was a strategic location and a source of water and uh, Megiddo had both of those and uh, especially the, the strategic location but it was located at the mouth of the Nahal Iron Pass and so Megiddo controlled access to that road that linked Egypt with Mesopotamia and Anatolia which was the most important trade route, the most important military route so, uh, you see there, and, and I'm going to try to, I got a really wide panorama, and I hope, I hope you can see it. I hope it's not too far away when we get to it, but standing from Megiddo, you can see the entire Jezreel Valley, and um, I'm going to point out here in just a minute um, where everything was at, but Megiddo is the only site in the land of Israel that's actually mentioned in all of the records of the Near Eastern ancient powers. It was one of the most fought over cities in the region, um, not that we need you know um, uh, history, to back up the Bible. We need the Bible, uh, uh, history. Uh, the Bible backs up history is, is what happens, but the, and the Bible is not written to be a history book, but where, where history is mentioned, the Bible is always accurate, and here's, this is a perfect example. Uh, one of the things, and, and just, just recently, within the last couple years, honestly, uh, you know, for a long time, secular scholars and archeologists and a lot of these people said that, that King David And King Solomon were not real people because they found no evidence for them in the archaeological record. I mean, of all people, King David, right? I mean, he's all the way throughout the Bible. I mean, Jesus' lineage comes through David, which, again, it's important. If there was no David, then there could be no Christ through the line of David. If there was no Christ through the line of David, then the Bible's wrong about not just David, but about Christ, right? So it's important. This is a very, it's not just, well, uh, David, King David, it's just a bunch of stories, if it's just a bunch of stories, then, then the entire Bible is false and based on stories, right? But now recently, very recently, like within the last couple of years and even within the last year, they found some very strong evidence for King David and not just mentioned by you know, people in Israel, but by people outside of Israel. And um, uh, I forget the name of the king and it's gonna, I can't remember the name of the king that actually killed um, the king of Judah and the, the king of Israel. And I, remember I told you they were split. Right? You had the king of Israel, uh, or the nation of Israel, which had 10 tribes, and the, and the kingdom of Judah, which had two tribes, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. Uh, this king, and I cannot remember his name, that came in and defeated both of those kings, called, it, uh, called him the king of Israel, and then he called him the king of the city of David. And for them to call him, and this is in a, in a secular uh, setting, to call him the king of the city of David proves that there was actually a city of David and proves that there was a King David, not to mention that there's 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 other places out there now that have, uh, you know, they found David's name mentioned, they found what they believe to be David's palace there, and, and a lot of other things, but all of those are relatively recent. For a lot of years, people tried to disprove the fact, because archaeology didn't prove it, that David was not a real person, and that therefore Solomon was not a real person, and, you know, all the things that we find out about them are, you know, are, are just, are false, but Megiddo is actually one of the sites, the only site in the land of Israel that's mentioned in all of those writings. So you see off in the distance there Mount Gilboa, so that would put Megiddo kind of around the corner. And this whole the whole line right there that you see at the bottom is the Megiddo Pass. That's where they would have had to go through if they were on a trade route, if they were on a military route. But the first fully recorded battle in history, uh, Pharaoh Thutmose III, his army faced a coalition of Canaanite kings, took place there in fourteen. 79 B.C. That's the first fully recorded battle. doesn't mean it was the first battle. It's the first fully recorded one. And I think I put the quote in there later on, but Thutmose III said taking Megiddo was the same as, as conquering a 1,000 armies. Uh, I mean, it was such a st- strategic place. So here, here we'll give you a little bit of an idea, all right? There's the Jezreel Valley, which we looked at last week. There's Nazareth. There's Mount Tabor, which we're going to talk about in a little bit and the Hill of Moray, all right? So then kind of on around there just a little bit, and I've got a little bit, one, one that's a little bit wider, where actually the uh, Tel Jezreel is and, um, and Mount Gilboa and all of those, which all of those are all the way down there through the, through the Jezreel Valley. But there is Megiddo, and you think, I mean, you see that, that location and just how it would very easily control everything coming through there. And uh, many, many, many battles have been fought there. Armageddon. And that's how we see it there in the Bible, and we're going to look at that in in Revelation here in just a second. But Armageddon means hill of Megiddo, and that's where Christ is going to destroy the Antichrist. It's going to be a very, very important place in history. Uh, You can write down Zechariah 12, 1 through 13, 12, 1 through 13, 2, and then 14, 1 through 11. Great passage. If you go back and read it and, and just kind of see everything that's going to happen there for the sake of time, we're not going to do that tonight, but we will read a few here. In Revelation chapter 16 and verse number 12, it says, And the sixth angel poured out his vial upon the great river Euphrates, and the water thereof was dried up, that the way of the kings of the east might be prepared. And I saw three unclean spirits like frogs come out of the mouth of the dragon, and out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet. For they are the spirits of devils, working miracles, which go forth unto the kings of the earth and of the whole world to to, to gather them to the battle of that great day of God Almighty. Behold, I come as a thief. Blessed is he that watcheth and keepeth his garments, lest he walk naked and they see his shame. And he gathereth them together into a place called in the Hebrew tongue Armageddon, which is the hill of Megiddo. So, uh that's, that's Armageddon right there. That's where everything, this is standing there looking from, the, from, uh, from Megiddo, from Armageddon, but that's where the battle is going to take place. Could you imagine? it? Just picture in your mind for a second all of the armies uh, gathering with the Antichrist and Jesus Christ coming back and defeating all of those armies. But why he picked there, I don't know. He could have picked any place he wanted to on earth. He could have picked any place he wanted to in space for that matter, I guess, but he picked Megiddo. He picked Armageddon, and that's where it's going to take place, and what an amazing thing that that's going to be. Great, great uh, story there if you read, uh, I say story, it's not really a story, and it's not, it's not an exciting thing to read, other than the fact that we win if you're part of uh, Jesus Christ's army, but Zechariah there explains it, it very well, and, and just a horrible, horrible thing it's going to be for those that don't know Jesus Christ as their Savior. For those who do, it's going to be a great thing, and it'll be something that we can look forward to. But there's Megiddo. And I'm going to show you some pictures here. We're going to actually get onto Tel Megiddo there, but we're standing down here in the valley of Jezreel, the, uh, uh, the valley of Megiddo or Armageddon. But up there on the top there is where Megiddo itself is. As you're walking up or as you're driving up, it's a taller than it actually looks like from, from a distance, but uh, it's, it's had so many levels of civilization built on top of it that that's why it looks like that. But there, there's another picture of it, and um, that's actually a cutout, which we'll talk about in just a little bit. Um, that, that's actually uh, a cutout down into the bottom where, they, where the archaeologists have been able to see just layer upon layer upon layer upon layer of civilization. And essentially what they've done with this, now it didn't look like that before. In fact, I do have a picture of what it looked like before they actually started the excavation, and I'll show you that in just a second. But essentially what they've done is taken a slice out of the pie and just pulled it all out. That's, what that, that's why it looks like that. But that's how they're able to get down and see that there's been that many civilizations. And, and if they were to start digging down all over Megiddo, they would find stuff everywhere that's buried in that hill. I mean, they can't do that without dismantling the entire thing without destroying everything that was there at the time of Solomon and all of those other you know those other things that are there near the near the surface. But um, that's why it looks like that, and that's how they've been able to figure these things out. So uh, we'll show you some of that in just a minute as well. But here, standing from the top, all right, and, and I mentioned this, all right? It, it, the, the view of that entire thing. Okay, Mount Carmel is all the way up here near uh, is all the way up here near the coast, right there by Haifa. It's it's 15 miles to Megiddo, but you can see that entire distance. Okay, that little mountain in the corner is Mount Carmel. Then you move over to Nazareth. Of course, what happened in Nazareth? That's where Jesus grew up. He was born in Bethlehem. He grew up in Nazareth. But Nazareth is actually growing up into quite a city today. It it didn't look anything like that when Jesus was there. But that's Nazareth. And then you have Mount Tabor, which is, you can't really see it in the distance there. I I can, but maybe from where you're at, you can't. Then Mount Moray, which we looked at, Tel Jezreel, which we looked at last week, and then Mount Gilboa. And there's not enough room for an arrow, but if if I was to put it in there, right in between Tel Jezreel and Mount Gilboa would have been the Herod Spring that we talked about a couple weeks ago. That was right there as well. But all of that is all part of the Jezreel Valley. And uh, again, that's where, that, that's where that last battle is going to take place there, right there in um, Armageddon. But there's the Valley of Jezreel. And this is just to kind of go back and remind you what we looked at last week. I pointed, this, is, this is one of the slides that I gave you last week. So there's the Hill of Moray, Ein-Herod. Mount Gilboa and Megiddo would be that way, kind of around the corner. If you were standing on Tel Jezreel, it would be kind of around behind you, over here. But all of that valley, if you're standing on, uh, if you're standing on Megiddo, you can see all of that valley. All right. So Tel Jezreel would have been kind of, well, is right there where that arrow was pointing down to. Where we were looking was this way. So you can see uh, a little bit of Nazareth. You can see Tabor. You can see Moray. But then around behind you would have been where Megiddo is at, all right? Just to kind of try to put it in perspective there for you, all right? But there is the view of the plain of Megiddo from Mount Carmel looking east, panning from, north, from south to north. It's just a quick little pan, but this kind of gives you an idea of how vast and how massive that valley really is. So amazing, amazing how big it is, it's hard hard to capture all of that, I tried, but it's hard to capture how big it all is. So the Valley of Megiddo meets the Jezreel Valley and the Herod Valley to form that one large large plain that runs all the way, as I mentioned, to the Jordan uh, Valley, Uh, so it goes from the Jordan Valley, see the Herod Valley, the Valley of Jezreel, the Valley of Megiddo, really it's all kind of the same thing with different little split-offs and names and things like that, but... Um, All of that runs all the way up to north of Mount Carmel. That's how wide that valley is. And and as we'll look at uh, a little bit later, not not tonight, but a different time with with Elijah and see everything from Mount Carmel and kind of looking back, you can see just how vast that valley really is. But the Kishon River originates there in the valley and enters the sea on the northeast side of Mount Carmel. So you can see the the Kishon River. And it actually runs down to the Mediterranean Sea. It, It looks like it's coming this way but it's actually flowing the opposite direction because that's, that's, that's south. But uh, well, I'll mention a couple of things here. <clears throat> the land was actually allotted to the tribe of Issachar. And again, just for the sake of time, I'm not going to take you to Joshua chapter 19, um, but it's on the, it, it is on the borders of West Manasseh to the south, Zebulun to the northeast, and Asher to the north. Uh, right there in that little center section, there, you have all of you have Tabor and, and Jezreel and Megiddo and, and all of those little areas right there. But all of that was given to, uh, to Issachar. So then we get into actually looking at this, and, and this, is, this is standing in that cutout there. But a lot of different levels of civilization were found by archaeologists who dug through dug that trench on the hill. This is actually what Megiddo looked like in 1910 to 1920. And uh, again, same height, but without that pie shape cut out of it. That was before they started really doing a lot of their excavations and, and, um, <clears throat> and cut all those things out and found all those different things. Here's just a couple pictures of some excavations that were actually done in the 1960s. That pie cut out was actually, take, was actually done in the 1920s and the 1930s by the University of Chicago um, and, a, and an expedition that, that was from the University of Chicago that went there and, and did a ton of excavation work. Uh, they kind of laid the groundwork, and then they, as the more studying they did, and the more, um, <coughs> excuse me, the more um, uh, digging they did, just here and there, they realized that there was a whole lot more to it. So then, many excavations have come back since then, and, and the main one was there in the 1960s. <coughs> so you can see some different, uh, some different archaeological work that they were doing there. I'm going to show you a lot of what they've exposed and what they've, uh, what they've, you know uncovered as we go through this, but uh, the deep section dug by the University of Chicago, yeah, 1925 to 1939. So, I mean, you think about this, it would be very easy for them to just come in with, a, with an excavator, uh, and maybe not in 1925, but uh, now come in with an excavator and just dig out anything they want to, but you think about how much is, it would be lost and ruined and destroyed if you're digging through it with that. So, for them to take that huge pie cutout, that was all done by hand. Uh, It had to be. You have to sift through all of it. How else do you figure out which layers of civilization are from this period and this period and this period without taking all of that time to do it? So it provides a unique glimpse into the nearly 30 settlements. They estimate that there's 25, 26, but maybe even up to 30 different civilizations that have been uh, on Megiddo which is an amazing thing when you think about that. And just all, you know, they, the one got destroyed, they built another one on top of it. That one got destroyed, they built another one on top of it, and so on, 25, 26, 30 different times. And so they're built one on top of the other right there at the site. And we're gonna look at a couple things that actually show you some, uh, uh, some diagrams that, that will show you like where the different temples were built and things like that too, um, to, to kind of show you where all that is at. But due to the unique continuity of its occupation, the scope of the excavations. Tel Megiddo is actually considered the cradle of biblical archaeology and the laboratory of modern research methods, Uh, again, because of how much is there. There's so much for them to discover, so much for them to to find, and so when they have new technologies and things like that, Megiddo is usually one of the first places they go. Because of the importance of it, number one, um, not just to history, but to the Bible and to a lot of other things. So if you're looking at it from the air, that's where that large cutout is, all right? So it's just a small section of it. I'm sure if they started digging down, they would find so much more stuff, but then you ruin everything that's on top of it to get there, and uh, who knows, maybe someday they'll be able to do ground penetrating radar or something and figure some, you know, figure some way to, to, to be able to get down there and figure out exactly what's there, but to, this, to, to today at least, that's where they've been able to get that. So a lot of idolatrous ar- ar- artifacts <clears throat> have been on, cl- on Earth there, including Baal, uh, figurines and massive circular canaanite altar, steps that were leading to the top of that altar. And, and again, when I say "massive canaanite altar," okay that doesn't look very big if you're just looking at it right there, right? But that's actually 32 feet in diameter across. That's how big this thing was. And so all the sacrifices, they found all kinds of animal bones and, and, and so many different things to prove that this was an altar. In fact, I found a picture. I didn't take this picture, <clears throat> but there's a young boy laying. Uh, I say, a young boy, it might be a man, I don't know, but laying on top of that altar to kind of give you a picture of just how big that thing is. So uh, a massive, massive place there on the top of Megiddo, where all of those, um, uh, where all of that, those altars would take place I mean, those uh, sacrifices would take place Yeah, thank you, brother. <clears throat> Something's stuck in my throat. <clears> throat. I can't get it out. But there's a, there's a figure of Baal from Megiddo. There's a lot of different, uh, a lot of different f- uh, figurines of Baal in a lot of different um, positions, if you will. But um, Baal is depicted as a bull a lot of times, but if he's in human form, he's depicted like this, and he's carrying, uh, he's got thunder and lightning in his hand. <clears throat> we'll look at a lot of different um, things when we get to the Israel Museum. There's, a, the, you know, just throughout history, there have been so many different um, uh, depictions of Baal, if you will. That's this actually very, very small. I mean, this was like some—that's something that could fit in your pocket, and, and that's what a lot of people did, right? So you remember the story of Laban when, when his his, uh, his idols went missing, and he's like, "Where's my idols?" It's not some massive Buddha statue where he's like, "How could we lose it?" Right? And Rachel was sitting on it, and you could see this giant bulge underneath of her. Right? It would have been something like this, more than likely, maybe maybe a little bit bigger than that, but very easily hidden. And uh, so, you know, a lot of people had those. Remember, Alexander the silversmith was making the idols to Diana of Ephesus. It would have been things that they could carry with them or, or set on a mantle. I mean, they didn't have, they, their houses didn't look anything like our houses look today. Uh, you know, the average house in America is, you know, probably 1,500 square feet, maybe bigger. I don't know what the average size is. We have massive houses. You go into theirs, there were rooms that were big enough to live, and that was about it. And so you know, they wouldn't have had room for a massive Buddha statue or something, a massive Baal statue or or things like that. If they wanted those, that's where they would go to the temple, and those massive statues would be there in the temple. So they did have those, but not not individually. So they found these things there at Megiddo, again, just because of so many different civilizations that have been there. One of the main ones was a Canaanite civilization, and obviously they were, you know, this is all, remember, this is the land of what? Canaan. (laughs) <laughs> right? So all the Canaanites and everybody that lived in there that they had to overtake in order to get the land that God had promised to them. So uh, they found all these different things there as well. But there are actually five, and you can I hope you can see that diagram. That's the diagram that I was wanting you to see. But there's actually five different temples built on top of one another uh, as new civilizations were built. They would wipe the old one out, they would build their temple depending on what they, what they worshipped or who they worshipped what god they worshipped, and they would wipe that out and build another temple there, and wipe it out and build another temple there. Sometimes if they worshipped the same god, they would keep the temple and and either just put a new god in there or whatever else, but there's actually evidence of five different, uh, and it's called the sacred area there, but the evidence of five different temples that were built one on top of the other as new civilizations came along, and there you can kind of see, okay, there's that, that sacrificial altar, that little circle there right in the middle, but you have, uh, you know, the, the other different temples that were there and the areas that they would have been in as they've uncovered those things, and, and uh, you can see that. But that whole area right there, and, and as we're looking at it, that little cutout that we talked about is right there in that bottom left corner. So um, that's, that's where all of those things were at. That would have been the early bronze temples that were right there. This is all of Megiddo, and I'm going to point out each of, of, of the different places to you as we go through it. But that's the area right there, again, with all of those, there's that, there's that sacrificial thing. Now, what we're going to look at next is um, Solomon's, the things that Solomon built there. But just to kind of give you an idea of where this is at, all of this would have been the, uh, the temple area where all the sacrifices and everything would have taken place. And then this area over here, kind of where that person in the pink shirt is standing, is where we're going to look at next, Solomon's palace, Solomon's stables, you know, one of the things that Solomon is, is, is known for and talked about very much in the Bible is owning many, many horses, right? And he had a, he had a place for all of them here at Megiddo. Not not all of his horses, but for, for them to be there. So Solomon built Megiddo into one of his fortified cities with an administrative palace, stables for his chariot horses. In fact, turn over to 1 Kings chapter 9. 1 Kings chapter 9. It describes Solomon's work at Megiddo, Hazor, and Gezer. And actually, let me swing back real quick. I hope I can find my place after I do this, but let me, let me pull this map up again and show you, um, because this will show you where all those are. There's Hazor, just to the north of the Sea of Galilee, Megiddo, just to the south, and then Gezer uh, right there. Those were three of Solomon's fortified cities, and uh, one of the reasons that, they, that they've been able to prove that Solomon um, had a palace here and everything else is because the, the construction of Hazor and Gezer and Megiddo are all exactly the same. And uh, I'll show you a couple pictures, in, and we're going to talk about those civilizations later on, so I don't, I don't want to take much time at all, but I'm going to show you a couple pictures of just exactly how alike they are um, and how precisely cut the stones were and everything else that basically proves that it belonged to Solomon. But 1 Kings chapter 9, and verse 15, and this is the reason of the levy which King Solomon raised, For to build the house of the Lord and his own house and Milo and the wall of Jerusalem and Hazor and Megiddo and Gezer. Well, you don't need archaeology to show that everything looks the same at Hazor and Megiddo and Gezer to prove that Solomon built it because the Bible says it right here. Solomon built those three places and oh, now archaeology says, yeah, actually, Megiddo and Hazor and Gezer all look the same, Right? I wonder why, because Solomon built it, and the Bible said that he did, and we'll show you some evidence of that in a little bit, but there's a reconstruction of Megiddo in Solomon's day. It was built right there on the top of of the hill of Megiddo, Um, and just to kind of give you a quick run through before we get into looking at these different things, there's the gate, obviously, as you're going in. Just to the left of that would have been Solomon's palace and the stables um, on the northern side, and on the southern side, he had another palace and stables. Uh, as if you need more than one on the top of the same hill, but he did. He had them both, and so uh, he could go do whatever he wanted. Now, one of the things that's very interesting as well, but this is the, uh, the city that, that had a massive six-chambered gate there, and uh, that's one of, the, one of the things that Solomon did was built six-chambered gates, which was not all that common. Most of them had four, um, and Solomon, Solomon built his, especially his fortified cities with six, but there again, is the gate area and and we're gonna talk about the gate area as we move into it. But um, uh, one of the interesting things is that Solomon built his palace right next to the horse stables. Uh, you know it's not like they had air conditioning they could close the doors and the windows and all of that stuff so i I don't know why he did that but he did it on the north and the south side he put his palace right next to the the horse stables either either he loved the smell of horses or he loved hearing their hoofs click or who knows what i I don't know why but that's what he did on both sides but there's the gate area and so solomon's gates have been unearthed at megiddo megiddo hazor and geezer and they had that same unique construction. I'll show you a couple of pictures that get it a little bit closer there, but you can see the, the chambers there in the gate, right? And, and um, this is maybe a little bit closer, but there's Megiddo, okay? And then here is um, Hazor. They look exactly the same if you look at it from the top. But you see how that's a six chambered gate? Actually, it looks like eight, but the reason why it looks like eight is because the two in the front would have been towers that the guards would have stood on, and it was not actually necessarily a chamber as part. And you can see how it's separated there. Uh, there's, you know, this. It's just, it's just an actual tower that they would have gotten into and, and used as, as a lookout. But then you had six chambers there, and those chambers could have been used for anything. Uh, they used them for administration. Remember that the Bible talks about Lot and says that he sat in the gate of the city. Okay, sitting in the gate of the city basically means that you have a place of power, or you have a position because you sat in the gate of the city. That's where the administration took place. That's where. Uh, You know, that's where the the city rulers, if you will. Now, the king obviously had his palace, but he was not the one that was doing the daily administration. Those who were doing the daily administration were the ones who were sitting in the gate. And that's what Lot did in in Sodom, and, and that's what this would have been. But they could have been used for all kinds of different things. They were used for storage, guard rooms, armory, administration, whatever other purpose they wanted to use them for. But that was one of the things that was unique. So here's Megiddo and here's Hazor, and, and you can see that, that they're very, very similar. Now, Hazor is obviously done, uh, they've done a lot more reconstruction on Hazor, and that's what these are. In fact, we'll see these in just a second as well, but each chamber is used for all of those different things, and as you move through the center, you could have just walked straight in if you wanted to, or you could have gone off to either one of those little chambers as you walk through, and that's how, that's how it was done. So, here's the lower gates with reconstruction lines, and almost every place, you'll see a reconstruction line. See the just a piece of wood on this one, but everything lower than that is original. Everything above that is reconstructed. Now, mostly what they did is take stuff that they found there. So, it would have been from the same period. It would have been the same you know, the same stones that were cut. Maybe every once in a while, if they can't find a stone that fits or whatever else, they'll have to bring one in. But for the most part, it's built out of material that's already there. But you can see the difference between what was original and then what's been added on. And so, that's the lower gates with the reconstruction lines. Here's some more pictures of it. This one's from the top, so you can really kind of see those chambers in those gates. And um, there's the upper gates. And this is, obviously, it's been reconstructed. There's, there's your reconstruction line on it again. But one of the things that, that set Solomon apart from all of the rest of these nations that built these gates is that Solomon's, his, his stones were cut very, very precisely, and uh they're they're the exact same way in all three of those places the fortified cities of solomon you can see some more examples of the of just how how the the chambers looked there but when i say lower gates and upper gates here's an example of that to give you an idea there's the lower gates you'd walk through and then there would be the upper gates. there's the base of the towers you see that see the towers that are there and then as you walk through those six chambers would have been there right behind the towers and so you have your lower gates And then you have your upper gates. And again, they're all designed for protection. In fact, here's some, uh, from the time of Solomon, the Jews would build roads that led up to those gates so that they ran along the wall. So if you're going to try to come in the main gate, you've got to expose yourself to all of those people up on those walls that can just dump hot, you know, hot oil on you or shoot arrows at you or do whatever they want to. So um, they they were all designed that way to be a protection for those who were inside that city. And again, with Megiddo being you know, on the top of a pretty big hill, not, if you, even if you could make it up the hill, now you've got to scale the walls, and it just made it that much more difficult. So really, the only way that you could get into a place like Megiddo would be to, would be to breach the front gates, and, and you can see how difficult that would be. Because then what happens is, you've got soldiers that are in all of those chambers, and you know, you've got to fight past those things. How do you get past a bunch of soldiers, soldiers that are stabbing people as they're, as they're trying to get through? So it's a tiny little, you know, a little entrance there that you're trying to get. You couldn't rush, you know, 30 people through there all at the same time and just bull rush it. You could only fit, you know, maybe a couple of guys abreast, and you're trying to run through there. So, so obviously, all those things were very, very well protected. And um, um, this comes from the archaeology of the Bible book, uh, archaeology of the Bible book by book. Any enemy chariots approaching in order to attack the gate were thus exposed to the defenders on the wall. That's just a model, a reconstruction of it, but. You can see, I mean, how difficult that would be to try to attack one of those places, and Solomon was very, very good at that. He wasn't the only one that did it, but he was very good at it. There's a reconstructive drawing of that Solomon, uh, the Solomon Gate at Megiddo, and again, the gates had those two square towers in the front, and that would be the second gate once you've already made it through that lower gate. That's the upper gate. That would have been the actual entrance into the city. And obviously it would have very been very well protected so there's also evidence of, of, of a northern palace and um, here's the diagram of where that would be at so we looked at the gate the gate would have been down there kind of in that in, in this in this picture the top right corner there then you, you walk in through the gates and then you have your northern stables and you have your northern palace and um, again it's 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 very very big compared to what it looks like it looks like a little dot in the middle of a you know in the middle of a hill but that's uh, I mean, that's very big. In fact, let me give you a reconstructive drawing of the palace there. Excuse me, at Megiddo. And you see the people in there, and, and there's the stables on the other side. I mean, just, just uh, not, not massive as you think of like a castle, but for, for that time period, again, as I mentioned, most of the houses were very small, a couple rooms maybe, and, um, and just enough room for everybody to lay down and sleep in at night, you know? And so to have something that size is actually, is actually very impressive. And, uh, but there's, there's what an artist thinks, just based on the archaeology and everything else that they found, what, what Solomon's palace probably would have looked like there uh, at Megiddo. But then they found evidence for stables, for Solomon's horses and chariots, and there and were southern and nor- northern stables, and they could have fit upwards of 450 horses. And uh, again, that's, I mean, that's a lot, and when you think about how many horses Solomon had, he had to have a place to put all of them, and, and they would have been inside the city, which is another uh, interesting thing there. But that's the reconstructive drawing of what the, the northern stables at Megiddo would have looked like. The southern stables were actually much, much bigger. And uh, so the northern palace is more than likely where Solomon would have spent most of his time. And those, the northern stables would have been the ones that were right next to Solomon's palace, as I mentioned. But there's the, there's the northern palace and the stables there. Here's some more pictures of it as we move through. All of these things obviously have been just, just dug down and, and, and gone through layers of, of dirt and whatever else on there to get to those, but they're very they're very confident archaeologically that these are the stables that Solomon had there at Megiddo. Uh, some more pictures there. This would have been kind of the palace area. But the northern palace. List the northern stables, all different rooms that, that, uh, that would have been part of that as well. So there's, there's a, a drawing then of the northern stables where they would, where would have been at and where the southern stables would have been at. And uh, here's a reconstructive drawing of Solomon's uh, southern stables. So uh, much, much bigger actually, and, and if you were to put a person in there, it would have been a little person standing right there by the, uh, by the little manger there in the middle, the, the watering trough. But they've done some reconstructive work there at Megiddo, and so it seems, uh, just based on everything that they've that they've been able to find through reading and through, you know, uh, people writing about it and things like that, the Northern Kingdom actually had established a major horse breeding and training center uh, there in the 7th century B.C., and that was apparently one of the reasons for the prosperity there of the Northern Kingdom. And so, the Assyrian records from the 9th and the 8th century, obviously, you count down B.C., uh, they praised Israel's skills in chariotry, which means they obviously had a place where they were practicing and, and studying and everything else, and this was more than likely the place. So you can see, they have like a little, I don't know if you can see that iron horse right there, just to kind of show you what a horse would have looked like in there, but that would have been one of five of those stables on the southern half. Let me go back to that. You see how there's five different stables lined up? All right, and that's, that's pushing up against the outside wall there. So this is what one of those stables would have looked like on the inside. It had pillars that would have been holding it up and mangers uh, throughout the inside of there. There's a, a manger and a tethering post for the horses. By the way, again, you know, when we th- when we talk about a manger, we often think of, uh, of a wooden cradle, right? That's what the Christmas story tells us a manger is. That's a manger. That's what a manger would have looked like, uh, a, a stone um, uh Pot essentially is what it is, and they would have each holded an ephah of of grain. But there's the foundation of the southern stables, and I uh, just kind of give you an idea of how how big that place is and what it looked like. Now here's here's a, a picture of a manger. They they've redone a lot of the mangers, but this is an actual original feed trough or a manger there at Megiddo and uh, they they held one ephah of grain. You can see a person standing. You can see his legs up there in the top corner. It kind of gives an idea. It's not huge, but it's it's uh, certainly bigger than, than, you know, than what we think of a lot of times when we think of a little cradle being a manger you know, out of wood. But there's the Southern Palace and stables, just a, a few more pictures of that to give you an idea of, of what that looked like there. And again, there's, there's not tons of it left, obviously, because it's just all been, that's been, been 3,000 3, years ago, right? Three or 4,000 years ago at least. Now, there is another thing that's very interesting. There's a massive grain silo. It's 23 feet deep. And um, it's it's it uh, had steps that went down to the bottom. It was a public grain silo from the time of King Jeroboam. which if you think about 793 to 753 B.C., what happened in between there? Do you remember? 786 B.C., does that ring a bell? I'm sorry, what am I thinking? It's 586. Yeah, 586 B.C. Yes, is when the is when the temple was destroyed, right? Uh, I don't know why I was thinking seven eighty six, but seven ninety three to seven fifty three. Who's Jeroboam? Huh? Solomon's son, right? So Solomon was there, and then Jeroboam was there right after him, and then Jeroboam the second here has a but but he's the one that more than likely built this. There has a capacity of twelve thousand bushels, and uh, that's a massive massive grain cell. Yeah. Rehoboam was Solomon's son. Jeroboam, Jeroboam was. Uh, he, Jeroboam was from another, and he was in the northern kingdom. Rehoboam was Solomon's son in the southern kingdom. Yes, and um, but Jeroboam. Now, what does the Bible say about Jeroboam? Many, many times. About all the other kings, I should say. Yeah, they walked after Jeroboam, their father, who caused Israel to sin. Right, so. Jeroboam was not a good king and uh, was, not a good, uh, was not a good man to follow. Now, you remember, Jeroboam was, and, and I'm, I should have looked all this up because now, now I'm getting fact-checked on this, but it's good. Jeroboam was the first king in the northern kingdom. Rehoboam was the first king in the southern kingdom, right? So Jeroboam was the one who started off with uh, an entire line of kings that came behind him where not one of them in the northern kingdom followed after the Lord. Right Now, there was a lot in the southern kingdom that did not either, but there was, there was, a, there was a good number of them who did, and, uh, and we'll talk about some of them as we go along. But Jeroboam is the one who more than likely uh, created this grain silo. It was a public silo there. You can see in the middle there, All right, this thing in the back is something different, which we'll talk about in a second. But there's the gate area, the northern stables, the temples, uh, and then the grain silo there in the center. And uh, it would fit 12,000. 12,000 bushels of grain, and uh, there it is from the top, which is uh, some interesting things about it, and this is how they know exactly what it was. They found straw between the stones the stones, to, to show them basically what the function of that was. Now, this, again, is similar to large grain storage units at Hazor, which as, as you know, and it's just a guess on their part, but um, it could point to the additional function of Megiddo as a royal store city which is what they, you know, the kings would have used that as a place to store their grain. Well, what better of a place to store it in a place that's heavily fortified like Hazor and like Megiddo, right? Uh, if the king wants to make sure he's got food to eat, he's going to put it in his most secure places. And so that makes perfect sense that that's exactly what that grain storage was. But uh, it was, a, it was a, royal, a royal store city during Jeroboam's kingship. And actually, here's some proof that uh, Jeroboam was there as the king at Megiddo because there's his royal seal that was found there at Megiddo and um, that's on display at the Israel Museum as well. But Megiddo's main water source was located at the foot of the mound beyond the city's fortifications and uh, it's circled there in the bottom. That's where the the water source was. There was a, a spring down there that uh, that they could get to, but in order to get to it, they actually had to go outside the city to get the water. Well, that's a dangerous thing, because if you have to go outside the city to get water, then number one, if if you're being besieged, or if somebody's coming after you, or uh, if there's a threat, uh, you have to go outside the city to get water. That means they could kill you while you're doing it, or they could block that water source and keep you from getting to that water. So what they did there at Megiddo, in order to ensure access to the spring from within the city, was a hidden gallery that was built on the slope of the mound in the 10th or the 9th century B.C., and it's, it's actually still there. So it was later blocked. It was replaced by an elaborate water system that remained in use in the Assyrian city of the 7th century B.C., and, and probably much uh, longer after that. But before its construction, they would have to leave the wall to go outside and get that water from the spring. That's what it looks like from the air. And uh, as you descend, now I'm, I'm going to show you this a little bit closer up, but it may be hard to see you see the steps that are right there? Now, there's a, there's a set of man-made iron steps that go down, and that's what you walk down there now, but those steps that you see coming in from the from the right side up there in that top right corner are the original steps that go down into that well. Now, the funny thing is, we were just talking about this before the service, but the funny thing is, it was the women who always went and gathered water at the well, and uh, so, you know, the, the guides usually make a joke and say there weren't any fat women in Megiddo because they had to do all of that work, and... Uh, uh, go down there and gather all of that water and, and bring it back up, and back and forth they went every single day pretty much to get water from that spring. But there's the original steps, so you can, you can see them, I just thought maybe it'd be easier to see it a little bit further out. There's the steps that are obviously the man-made steps that allow you to go down into it. So we went down into it, and uh, it's actually a pretty interesting thing there as you go down, just straight down into that chamber, and goes down uh, toward, toward, the, uh, toward the spring there at the bottom. Now, they, there was a tunnel then that was built because they had to get to the spring. So if you had to go outside the city to get to, the, to where the spring was at, you can't just build a tunnel down there and expect to hit it. So they, they built, built a shaft. It's called Ahab's shaft, and they went straight down, and then they had to go out to meet that, that, uh, that spring. And so they dug a tunnel that was 300 feet long, and there's the tunnel. But 300 feet is the length of a football field through solid rock. And they started, and this is not with the use of modern technology that we have today. They started on one side digging, and they started on the other side digging, and they met in the middle, and they were only one foot off. Could you imagine that, being one foot off with people from the top? Uh, You know, people, there's nobody to say, no, you guys need to go this way a little bit, or the camera's showing that you're getting off a little bit, go this way, all right? They didn't have that ability to do that, but uh, when they met there in the middle, and there's the spring that's there at the bottom where the residents could go get that water without being detected and get back up. Now there was actually, there is an outside entrance, it opens to a concealed entrance that was outside the wall so if they absolutely had to they could get out, it was concealed and I got a diagram, it's a very crude diagram. This is a diagram that's actually um, carved on one of the stones there to show you what it looks like but it's, it's hard to see. So I found this and this is exactly what that diagram looks like but there's the city wall, there's the shaft that goes down to the stairs, there's the tunnel going across, there's the spring at the bottom, and then there's the, basically the stairs going out. And they had this blocking wall that was there uh, to, to hide it, to conceal it, so that if they did need to get access somehow through there, they could do that. But this is kind of what it looks like then. You had the water shaft. You have the tunnel that goes through there. Which, again, just to kind of put it into perspective, that's a football field. Okay, That, that tunnel area, that's 300 feet. That's a football field. There's the spring. And then right here is where you come out. That's the, that's the modern exit from the spring. But they would have had a concealed exit in there. Uh, somewhere that they could, you know, that, that was hidden so that if they had to get in or out, they could do that as well. But there's the shaft coming back out. And uh, so there's Megiddo from the top, all right? I think I should stop there because I want to I tell you some more things. And um, actually, let's finish. We don't have that much, all right? Let me, let me tell you this. In fact, one, one place that I want you to turn in the Bible and we'll be done. Judges chapter 4. Judges chapter 4. If we try to pick this back up in the middle again later, it's going to be too, too hard. So I just, we'll, we'll finish this up. It's not any later than we normally get out. So Judges chapter 4, 34 major battles. Now this is, this is not just your skirmishes and your different ones. 34 major battles have been fought in the plain of Megiddo in the last 4,000 years, including several of them that are described there in the Bible. And a lot of these we've already talked about. That's why I'm going to cover them fairly quickly. But this one we have not. Deborah and Barak defeated the Canaanites there, and we find that story in Judges chapter 4, but we need to go back to Judges chapter 4 and verse number 13. If you've never heard this story especially, it's a tremendous story. Verse 13, and Sisera gathered together all his chariots, even 900 chariots of iron, and all the people that were with him from Herosheth of the Gentiles unto the river of Kishon. So, You see exactly what we're talking about. You saw that on the map. The Bible makes it very clear exactly where they were, right? So from the river Kishon, 900 chariots. That means they had 900 horses. That means they had way more men than that. I mean, could you imagine seeing that army coming at you, right? So that's the setting. And Deborah said unto Barak, "'Up, for this is the day in which the Lord hath delivered Sisera into thine hand. Is not the Lord gone out before thee?' So Barak went down from Mount Tabor." And 10,000 men after him. And actually, uh, what you're looking at right there, the, little, the small hill on the left side is Mount Tabor, all right? Let me show you a picture of it a little bit closer. Well, maybe not a little bit closer, but there's Mount Tabor. And so, uh, as the story continues, here, here you go. There's a better picture of Mount Tabor. Uh, verse number 15. Uh, so Barak, 14, so Barak went down from Mount Tabor and 10,000 men after him. And the Lord discomfited Sisera and all his chariots and all his hosts with the edge of the sword before Barak, so that Sisera lighted down off his chariot and fled away on his feet. But Barak pursued after the chariots and after the host unto Harosheth of the Gentiles, and all the hosts of Sisera fell upon the edge of the sword, and there was not a man left. Howbeit Sisera fled away on his feet to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite. But there was peace between Jabin, the king of Hazor, recognize that name, and the house of Heber, the Kenite. And Jael went out to meet Sisera and said unto him, Turn in, my lord, turn into me, fear not. And when he had turned in unto her, in, into the tent, she covered him with a mantle, a blanket. And he said unto her, Give me, I pray thee, a little water to drink, for I am thirsty. She opened a bottle of milk and gave him drink and covered him. Again, he said unto her, Stand in the door of the tent, and it shall be, when any man doth come and inquire of thee, and say, Is there a man here that thou shalt say no? Then Jael, Heber's wife, took a nail of the tent, and took a hammer in her hand, and went softly unto him, and smote the nail into his temples, and fastened it into the ground. For he was fast asleep and weary, so he died. <laughs> As if the Bible really needed to say that, but you get a tent, a tent stake through your head, you're probably not going to live through it. But just to make sure, he died. And behold, Barak pursued Sisera. As Barak pursued Sisera, Jael came out to meet him and said unto him, Come, and I will show thee the man whom thou seekest. (laughs) And when he came into her tent, behold, Sisera lay dead, and the nail was in his temples. So God subdued on that day Jabin, the king of Canaan, before the children of Israel. And the hand of the children of Israel prospered and prevailed against Jabin, the king of Canaan, until they destroyed Jabin, king of Canaan. Could you imagine what Barak must have thought when he walked into the tent? hey, here's the guy you're looking for, and his head is nailed to the floor of the tent with a tent stake. Uh, it's just an amazing story. But, but Judges chapter 5 and verse number 19, and for the sake of time, we're just going to jump ahead uh, because, because the rest of that uh, chapter 5 is, is a song of Deborah and Barak. But verse 19 says, the kings came and fought, then fought the kings of Canaan and Tanakh by the waters of Megiddo. They took no gain of money. So the river Kishon, and this is a really interesting thing, there you have a map of it again, flooded and swept part of Sisera's army away. We find that in Judges chapter 5 and verse number 21, a couple verses later. The river of Kishon swept them away. That ancient river, the river Kishon, oh my soul, thou hast trodden down strength. And again, this is a song they're singing for Deborah and Barak, but uh, interesting story. If you have time to read back through that story and read some some of the other details in there, it's an amazing story, but... Uh, that happened here in this valley. Here's another one, and we talked about this already, so we're not going to spend any time on it. You can read Judges 6 if you want to, but Gideon defeated the Midianites there. He camped at the Herod Spring, which you have a picture of. There's the Valley of Megiddo. There's Moray, Herod Spring, Gilboa. Again, this is this is actually a picture from uh, Jezreel, but that's that gives you an idea of where that happened. Here's another one. The Philistines defeated Israel there. 1 Samuel 1 and verse number 29 And they killed Saul and Jonathan on Mount Gilboa. And where did they hang their bodies? Their headless bodies? Bethshean, right? They hung their bodies on the wall at Bethshean, and we talked about that a little bit. But that happened here in this valley. Now, here's another interesting thing. The campaign of the Egyptian king Shishak to the land of Israel in the second half of the 10th century BC is documented in three sources. You find it in the Bible. In fact, turn over to 1 Kings chapter 14. You find it in the Bible. You find it in the inscription in Egypt, and you find it in an archaeological find at Megiddo. That stone is an archaeological find there at Megiddo that describes exactly what happened here. And so, uh, really, this is this is an amazing thing because it describes the importance of the um, the the of Megiddo. And so according to the Bible, there in 1 Kings chapter 14 and verse 25, and it came to pass in the fifth year of King Rehoboam, who is Rehoboam again? Solomon's son, that Shishak, king of Egypt, came up against Jerusalem, and he took away the treasure of the house of the Lord and the treasures of the king's house. He even took all away, and he took away all the shields of gold which Solomon had made. So this happens there. According to the Bible, his campaign took place in the fifth year of the reign of King Rehoboam and Judah, and the inscription on the wall of the temple of Amun at Karnak in Upper Egypt mentions Megiddo among the cities that Shishak captured. He was Egyptian, remember, and an archaeological find, which is a fragment of the royal inscription from the time of Shishak, was discovered there at Megiddo. And the inscription reveals really just the strategic importance of that city. And uh, just just a very, very valuable find, but also another, another thing that, that proves the Bible's story is true. Here's a couple other things, and then we're done. Jehu, we talked about this last week, was killed, uh, killed King Jehoram there in Jezreel, and that happened in that same valley. Jehu wounded King Ahaziah in Jezreel, and then the Bible says in 2 Kings 9.27 that, that Ahaziah fled to Megiddo, and he died at Megiddo. So we see that happening there. King Josiah was killed by Pharaoh Necho, king of Egypt in 608 B.C. Now, now Josiah was a good king, um, but, but he, he made some mistakes, and God, God uh, uh, killed him at the hand of Pharaoh Necho there in the valley of Megiddo. One of the pharaohs, Thutmose III, and I, I, this is the one I mentioned earlier, said conquering Megiddo was like conquering a thousand cities. Uh, because of, again, because of the strategic location. The Babylonian army under Nebuchadnezzar came through here on the way to besiege and conquer Jerusalem in 586 BC. They came right through that area on their way to, to destroy Jerusalem. A Greek army led by Alexander the Great came through there after the destruction of Tyre in 332 BC. Um, a Greek army under Antiochus Epiphanes came through here on the way to besiege Jerusalem in 168 BC. Roman legions came through on their way to besiege Jerusalem in A.D. 70. What happened in A.D. 70? The second temple was destroyed, right? So they came through there again, Herod's temple. Uh, here's another one. In 1799, Napoleon Bonaparte with 2,000 men routed a Turk force of 25,000 men in the Valley of Jezreel. He said all of the armies of the world could move, maneuver their forces on this plain. Uh, again, you saw how vast it is. You saw how big it is, but just uh, an amazing place. Now, here's, here's the last thing, because I think this is pretty interesting. Yeah. In September of 1918, British forces under General Edmund Allenby defeated the Ottomans and liberated the land from 1,250 years of Muslim rule, and that paved the way for the Jews to return and for the founding of the modern state of Israel 30 years later, had that not taken place. Now, the British were the ones that were ruling at the time when Israel was uh, declared a a nation again. The British were not in favor, by the way, of Israel becoming a nation. And they fought against it, and they were not friendly to Israel. Uh, I think God did it in spite of Britain, not because of Britain, uh, that they gained their independence. But Allenby's forces, and this is pretty interesting, drove Turkish observers from the Megiddo Hill, that's where where it happened, he attacked from the plain of Sharon. He created a, a diversion by, create, by placing 15,000 dummy horses. Imagine how long it took him to make 15,000 dummy horses, but he put them over there to make it look like their army was attacking from one side, and then he attacked from another side with way less men and actually defeated them. And again, that's what broke the back of the Muslim rule that allowed 30 years later Israel to come into the land and, and to, um, to become a nation again in accordance with prophecy, by the way. But the Valley of Megiddo is where the Battle of Armageddon will, will occur when Christ destroys the Antichrist armies. And it's, I mean, it's just, it's so hard to give you a, a picture of just how vast that valley is. Um, but it's, it's, it's a massive, massive valley, but that's where the battle is going to take place at the end. Uh, hard to comprehend that, but that's where, the, that's where Christ is going to defeat the armies of the Antichrist. Let me give you, this is, this is actually from a hot air balloon. Brother David Cloud, who's coming here in a couple of weeks. Uh, did a hot air balloon trip over that area, and uh, so this was uh, a picture from the hot air balloon of that valley. But just how vast! I mean, you you, you know, there's roads, there's roads with with four lane highways that you almost can't even see because it's so big, you know. All right, that's the end of it. But, but there it is again, the valley, of, uh, the valley of Megiddo, where the Battle of Armageddon is going to take place. So much history that's already there and so much future that's left to take place there. And, uh, man, I'm, I'm glad I'm on the right side of that. I can tell you that much. And uh, better make sure you are too. And uh, he's going to defeat the armies of the Antichrist there. Good, very good. All right, let's close in prayer, and then we'll sing our song. And then we'll be dismissed. Father, we love you. Again, we thank you so much for your goodness to us. So thank you again, as always, that we can see these places and that we can see the Bible come, come to life. And that, that, that's not just a bunch of stories. It's not just a bunch of made-up things to sound good or, or whatever, but it's truth. And we have archaeology to prove it. We have uh, the actual land of the Bible to be able to prove it and to see your hand at work. God, uh, I, I pray uh, for those who do not ne- yet know Jesus Christ as their Savior, not just here, but across this, this nation and across this world, that, that many would come to know Jesus Christ and, uh, and, and be saved before it's too late. Pray that you'd use us to do it. Thank you again for all that you do for us in Jesus' name. Amen.